Good evening, everyone. Good evening. My name is Sherilyn Eiffel, and I'm a member of the Board of Trustees of the Enoch Pratt Free Library. And um, many of you have met me before at other book events and other events here at the library. I'm a professor of law at the University of Maryland Law School. I want to first um, thank Judy Cooper, who organized this program today, and also Teresa Edmonds, who's been manning the table and being the host for this event, and to share with you how personally excited I am that Bernice McFadden is here. It's perhaps impossible to describe what it means to a writer to receive a fellowship to an artist's colony. Artist colonies are the stuff of dreams for those who are pulled and called by the fierce compulsion to paint, to dance, to compose, to write. They're spaces where you have time, solitary time, to create. It's a tremendous luxury, a blessing, and an experience like no other. And over the years, I'd heard, mostly from my novelist friends, about writer's colonies, but never did I think that I would be at one. And so it was, with almost a sense of vertigo, that I entered the dinner room at the McDowell Colony in Peterborough, New Hampshire, in May 2006. When I came into the communal dinner space, Bernice McFadden was the first person I noticed. We both had locks, and women with locks always notice one another. Um, Bernice is beautiful, so I noticed that. And yes, we were the only two black women in the room, and indeed the only two black women there during my residency. We hit it off right away. Brooklyn girls with a connection to Barbados and mothers of teenage daughters who were losing their minds. As writers, we couldn't have been and couldn't be more different. I'm not engaging in false modesty when I tell you that I am nowhere near being in Bernice McFadden's class. She is a writer par excellence with a gift that is powerful. Her ability to create characters, characters who are complex and flawed, characters who are hurting and tough, is unparalleled. On the night at McDowell, when it was Bernice's turn to share her work, as each artist must do during their residency, the room was transfixed. You could have heard a pin drop as Bernice described the experiences that shaped Rita, a character she was developing in her foray into more sexually explicit novels. Although if you've read some of her earlier work, you know that Bernice McFadden has never shied away from the sensual and the sexual in her writing. Bernice McFadden's novel, Sugar, enjoys its 10th anniversary. This book has been critically acclaimed, but it has never received the accolades it deserves. It is a story of such beauty and ugliness, pain and love. I wanted to put it down, but I couldn't, even when Bernice's prose seared me to the bone. And the book still haunts me to this day. I've often thought that if U.S. cinema were more courageous and not addicted to schmaltzy romantic comedies, Sugar would be a film. Bernice's novel, Nowhere is a Place, was a Washington Post best fiction book for 2006. Toni Morrison described Bernice McFadden's second novel, The Warmest December, as searing and expertly imagined. Bernice McFadden is a two-time finalist for the Hurston Wright Legacy Award for Fiction. Her new novel, Glorious, is another winner, Set in the Harlem Renaissance and the Civil Rights era, the novel tells the story of Easter Bartlett, a character who, like McFadden, is a writer. We are in the midst of a great talent, a powerful and a unique voice. I've not seen Bernice McFadden 
since she left McDowell in, in New Hampshire in 2005, and I couldn't be more proud to welcome to Baltimore and to our beloved Enoch Pratt Free Library, my friend, the writer, Bernice McFadden. Good evening. She's trying to bring me to tea. Um, I'm going to give you a little bit um, of my journey before I read from Glorious tonight. And um, what I'm going to start with, what I want you to know before you hear about it on the internet, on Twitter, or on Facebook, is that I started my career as a plagiarist at the age of eight. Um... I used to read the, um, I think they were called Golden, Golden Isle books and Disney books. And I quickly outgrew those. And I was, um, I was a curious child. And so when my mother was napping, I started going through her drawers, dresser drawers. And I found her stash of Harold Robbins and Jackie Collins books. I was eight. And I started reading this stuff, and I was really, um, I was inspired, for one. <laughs> um, a lot of what, are, what I read, of course, I, I didn't quite understand. I didn't um, come from a household that censored. So I understood sex, but not in the context that those two authors put it in. So I went to my room with these books, and I sat down, and I started writing my own short story. And I basically stole every single word that those two authors had written. And I was very proud of myself because I didn't know anything about stealing or plagiarism. And I brought my two-page story to my mother, and I was very proud. And I was like, I wrote a story. Can you please read it? And she sat down and she read it. And with each paragraph, the smile on her face became a line. And she was so thoroughly upset and thoroughly disgusted. She didn't know where I'd gotten this stuff from. She actually thought something had happened to me. And um, she's like, well, where, where, did you, where did you read this? And I said, well, you know, those books that you have hidden under your sweaters. <laughs> so um, she banned me from the books. But she never, she never really moved them, which meant to me that, again, I didn't come from a house that censored. She was like, well, you know, if you have a question, come and ask me. So it was at that point, I think, that I decided that I really, truly wanted to become a writer. So the years went on, and um, I attended public school up until fifth grade, and then I was sent off to Catholic school. And now all during this time, I'm not aware that there are any writers of color. And it's not even a question for me. I'm just reading what I like. And at that point, I was reading a lot of Stephen King. I was really enthralled with him. Um, when I went off to high school, I went to a boarding school, all girls in Pennsylvania, Catholic. 
Um, what do we have on the shelves in the library? Thoreau. <laughs> a lot of old, dead uh, white men. That did not interest me. And there was censorship in my school. Whatever we brought in, the nuns went through. So Stephen King went out the window. Um, it wasn't until, and I, I just realized this a few weeks ago, the first book that I read by a person of color written about people of color was The Color Purple. I was 18 years old. And my mother really, she really wasn't a big reader, but something about that book, she, that book was in the house and her friends would come over and it was part of every discussion. It really moved everyone in my neighborhood, everyone in my family. And when the movie came out, my parents went to see it together and they didn't do anything together. That's how important that book was. And that book actually changed my life. It changed my thought process because here was a book that talked about what my great aunts and my great uncles had been speaking about. So I connected with it. And so time went on. I went on to college. I thought I wanted to be, I knew I wanted to be a writer, but because I really wasn't seeing people who looked like me being published besides Alice Walker, I didn't know if it was something I could really accomplish. So I started to dabble in other things that held my interest. Fashion, I thought, held my interest. But after working a Christmas season at ANS, no, that was the end of that. <laughs> So um, travel was another thing that I was always very interested in. And I decided that I was going to go to Marymount College and take this little travel course and get my certificate and become a travel agent. I harassed um, a hotel company. It's um, closed down now. Um, I think they were called Rock Resorts. I sent them my resume every week. I wore them down. And finally, they said, come on in. And it was the best thing. So I'm there. I'm working as a reservationist. I have a little girl at this point. I'm a single mother. And I'm still writing my stories. I'm still writing. But nobody knows that I'm writing these stories. I'm just writing these stories for me. Two years later, the company was sold, and I found myself without a job. Six months after that, unemployment was over. My savings, what little I had, was depleted, and I found myself on welfare. And that was a changing point in my life, too, because I was responsible not just for myself, but for this little baby. And there was this little voice in my head that just kept saying, what is it you really want to do? What, what is it you really want to do? And what I really wanted to do was right. But that was impractical. My father was bringing home the chief, which is the government paper, <laughs> Every week, find a job, find a job, find a job. And my mother was working as a clerk um, for a brokerage firm, and she was like, well, you know, you could do something here. And that's not anything that I really wanted to do, but I needed to work. So I found another job um, at leading hotels. Still, I'm in the traveling thing. But now I've decided that I'm going to go back to school because I never finished my degree. And I'm going to go to school not because I really wanted to go to school, only because I knew I needed to have a degree to go another rung up on the corporate ladder. The classes that I should have been taking, I wasn't taking. I was spirited off to poetry 
and spirited off to African-American literature and spirited off to history. And it was in my creative writing class, and I've only taken two classes in creative writing, that my professor, who at the time had published two or three books, pulled me aside and said to me, I don't know why it is you're not published. And that was yet another change for me. Here was someone who had been published giving me confirmation about a talent I had suspected I had for quite some time. So I took all these short stories because I had only been writing short stories and I started sending out my stories to magazines and literary journals and rejection letter after rejection letter after rejection letter. And then I came across a book and there was a paragraph in the book that said, um, unknown writers are barely able, oh, it's, oh it's, very, it's, it's very rare for an unknown writer to publish a collection of short stories. A publisher is not really going to touch it. It's, it's, it's difficult for a known writer to do so. And so what I did that evening was I took all my short stories, I placed them on the carpet, and I waited for one to jump out at me, and Sugar was the story that jumped out. So that had to be about 92, 93. And so I started expanding on this story. And I would write, I would, I would come home from work, deal with my daughter for a while, send her up to my mother, take a nap, then wake up, bathe my child, read her story, put, put her to bed, and I'd write until 1 and 2 o'clock in the morning. And this went on and on and on. And it was, it was like an addiction. It was the first time in my life that I felt free. So I worked on the story on and off for about seven or eight years, all the while submitting it, submitting it, and I have, I think, 76 rejection letters for sugar. The rejection letters I was receiving at the time, because now this is, this is during the um, Terry McMillan era. This is the, um, during the Eric Jerome Dickey era. And basically what publishing was asking for, at least from women of color, were more books like those books. And the rejection letters I was receiving basically said, this is a really good story, but there's no market for it. Who's going to read it? Your people don't want to read this kind of book. And I'm like, I'm writing for all people, not just one sect of people. And yes, even, even if it was just for one sect of people, there are individuals in that sect who would like to read this story. So... One um, editor, um, agent, told me, why don't you um, change the story around, make it a bit more contemporary, read what's out there, make those changes and send it back to me. But I wouldn't give up. So um, a few years go by, and I was working at, um, at this point I was working at Sunburst Holidays up really far up in Manhattan. I was a uh, customer service manager there. And it was raise time. And my manager came to me and said, well, you know, things are kind of tough. Now I'm customer service manager. I know just exactly how much money is coming in and going out. We can only give you a 2% raise. And that was the kick in the butt I needed. And I got up and I said, you could keep your 2%. I'm out. I had a little bit of money saved. But there was just, you know, when you have this desire and you know that you're not supposed to be doing whatever it is you're doing at that point, that you were put here for something else, you could turn your ear to it, or turn your ear away from it, 
as much as you want, but it's just going to keep tapping at you, tapping at you, tapping at you. And so I left. And for the next seven months, I took that time to revise sugar. And all the while in my head, I'm like, I'm going to sell this book. I'm going to sell this book. So seven months later, I had $100 in the bank, <laughs> and I was back to square one. Had to find a job. I found a job at Goldman Sachs. It was a new department. And mind you, I'm working on an old IBM computer that I have to bang the monitor. I had a dot matrix printer. <laughs> it was terrible. This is what I was... I was working on um, my kitchen table. This is how bad it was. Um, but when I got into this new office, there was a beautiful laser jet printer, beautiful new computer, and the phone rang five times a day. That's it. So guess what I did? I worked on sugar. And I didn't have to buy paper for a year. I just printed everything out at work. And every once in a while, a VP would walk into the office Maybe he had to use the printer, and my manuscript would be mixed up with their paperwork. And they were cool. I was like, oh, you're writing a book? Yes, I am. Oh, good luck with that. Thank you very much. So it was, um, it was uh, February 1999 that I sent a query letter to an agent named James Vines. He's no longer a literary agent. And... Um, he contacted me about a week or two later, and he said, you know, I really enjoyed this query letter query letter send me the first three chapters. Now, this is just the way it goes. I didn't get excited. I had been down this road a number of times. And so I sent him the first three chapters. A week later, he came back. He said, I enjoyed those three chapters. Can you send me the entire manuscript, and can you give me exclusivity? I said, yes, but I didn't. I kept querying other agents. A week after that, he called me, and he said, I really love this story. I'd like to sign you. And I still didn't get excited because I knew of people who had literary agents who had not sold a book. So I said, well, at least my foot is in the door. And I went in, I signed with him on a Thursday. And Monday of the following week, I had a two-book deal. And then I walked into my manager's office and gave in my resignation letter. Because I knew that this is what I was supposed to do. I wasn't even thinking that something could go wrong, sales could drop, and that's exactly what happened. So here I am 10 years later. Now, in the middle, everything is fine, everything is good, um, the money is coming in. I'm, I'm selling books, but I'm not selling books in the way I would have if my books were marketed to all people. So by 2005 when I met Sherilyn, um, things were starting to waver a little bit. I was still um, trying to be positive about things. And Glorious was the book that I was working on, the book that I'm going to read from tonight. The idea for Glorious came to me in early 2004, January, February 2004. And I write about it um, at the end of the novel where I say I felt like the presence of Zora Neale Hurston and Nella Larson were standing in my kitchen speaking to me, saying that this is the story you have to write. I never have to chase a story. Um, it always just comes to me. So I went upstairs after I felt, had this feeling, I went upstairs and I um, typed out the first 20 pages, which would become glorious. 
And I, at my agent at the time, I told him about the book, and he was like, oh, yeah, it sounds interesting. But, see, once you stop making money for everybody, the interest goes away. Um, so I went to McDowell, and it was a magical experience. I felt while I was there that I was dreaming everybody else's thoughts. I was dreaming music scales and dreaming poetry. That's how fierce the energy was there. I got a lot done. I really committed myself to the story. I had about probably 30 pages when I got there, and I left with about 60 or 70, and I was only there for about two weeks. So at this point, I have a new agent. And I'm like, well, I'm Bernice McFadden. I've written all these books. You don't need a, a full manuscript to shop this story. Take these 100 pages. And she shopped it to about 10 top editors, and everybody said no. And then I said goodbye to her, and I got another agent. And um, at this point, the book is almost done. So I'm like, you have three quarters of a book here. Shop that. So he shopped it to probably... 30 or 40 agents, I mean 30 or 40 editors, and everybody said no. And that he was done with me. He was like, well, I'm not going to make any money off of you. And there was a point where I really wanted to just give it up because what was interfering with my creativity at this point was there wasn't really any money coming in. Um, I had a child in college at this point, car note, just life. But I kept being pulled back to that computer. Being, I kept being pulled back to that story. So in um, 2009, we're in 2010, right? So 2009, I started, well, 2008, I started querying um, editors that both agents decided they would not query. And I queried everybody. If, if it looked like they might enjoy a story like this, they got a query letter from me. Everybody said no. So at this point, I decided I'm going to start contacting the independent publishers. And the reason why I was staying away from them in the beginning was that I knew they couldn't give me an advance. There's no money. But I knew this book had to be published. It wasn't about the money. And it's never, it's never really been about the money. But we all want to get paid for and get paid well for what it is we do. So I sent a query letter to Johnny Temple. He's the founder of Akashic Books in Brooklyn. And he sent me an email back and he said, Well, we already have our list for 2010, but send me the manuscript and we'll see. So I sent it to him in April. And in July, I was at the Harlem Book Fair, and we ran into one another. It was our first meeting. And he said, um, I know it's been a few months. I have not read the book. One person in my office, there's only four people that make up this publishing company, and they all have to like the book. He said, one person read it. They loved it. But we all have to love it. And I don't want to have to give you any false hope. Me? After all these years? You cannot give me any false hope. <laughs> Because at this point in my mind, I had decided I was just going to go on ahead and self-publish it. So a month later, I had to go to Ohio for um, a meeting. And I woke up on this particular day, on that particular day, and 
I had this desire to go visit Nella Larson's grave. She's buried not too far from my home. And I've known she's been buried there for a number of years. But for some reason on that day, I had to go. And I read a book some years back that said, you always act on your hunches. So I got up. I got my good girlfriend from across the street. I'm like, we're going to the cemetery. Mind you, I had a flight in like two hours. It took us about an hour to find the grave. Went up there. I put my shells down, and I thanked her, and I left. I went to Ohio, and when I came back, there was an email from Johnny saying, we want to acquire this book. And nothing but magic has been swirling around Glorious ever since. <laughs> so um, I'm going to read the prologue tonight. Has anybody here read Glorious? One person? Two? <laughs> Three. Okay. Um, the prologue for Glorious was added later. When, when, for me, when the book was basically finished and I was querying. And um, one day I watched the um, Jack Johnson story, the documentary, and I was just intrigued. So intrigued that I ordered it on Netflix and, and watched it about 10 times. And every time my daughter would come into the living room, this documentary was on. She's like, what are you doing? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why I'm watching it. But after a while, I figured out why it was I was so intrigued because there was something within that documentary that needed to be in this book. Something needed to set this character to traveling. And I guess I should tell you about that for those of you who have not read it. So um, Glorious is basically my nod and thank you to the Harlem Renaissance. I don't think there's been a story written about the Harlem Renaissance that gives the Harlem Renaissance a voice, meaning the people involved, not about their work, but about their experiences. Not, that hasn't been written as far as I know. If you know of a book, please let me know. Um, and I needed a catalyst to tell this story, and the catalyst is Easter. And Easter and I, we're very similar. We're both writers, um, we, we both, we're both travelers, not just physically, but spiritually, soulfully. And um, the story starts in the Jim Crow South. It goes through to the Harlem Renaissance, just as the Harlem Renaissance is coming into effect, and it ends up, um, it, it ends in the civil rights, during the civil, civil rights era. Now, the story ends in 1961, and that year is significant because that's the year that President Obama was born, and that's where I wanted to end it. I never really know what the ending is going to be, but I knew it had to end in 1961 because he ran on change, and, and that's what the Harlem Renaissance was. The Harlem Renaissance changed everything that happened in America from that point on. And so I'm going to read the prologue. And this is what gets Easter to traveling. If Jack Johnson 
had let James Jeffries beat him on July 4, 1910, which would have proven once and for all that a white man was ten times better than a Negro, then black folk wouldn't have been walking around with their backs straight and chests puffed out, smiling like Cheshire cats, upsetting good, God-fearing white folk who didn't mind seeing their Negroes happy but didn't like seeing them proud. If Jack Johnson had given up and allowed James Jeffries to clip him on the chin, which would have sent him hurling down to the floor where he could have pretended to be knocked out cold, then maybe Easter Bartlett's father wouldn't have twirled his wife and daughters around the house by their pinky fingers, and his son, John Bartlett Jr., wouldn't have felt for the first time in his life pleased and glad to be a black man. And if Jack Johnson had let the shouts of kill that nigger, that rang out from the crowd unravel him, or the Nevada heat to irritate him, maybe then he would have lost the fight and things would have remained as they were. Things could have gone a different way if Jack Johnson hadn't gotten a notion some years earlier to cap his teeth in gold, so his smile added insult to injury when he was announced the victor of the fight of the century and that glittering grin slapped white folk hard across their faces. And if John Bartlett Sr. hadn't bet on Jack Johnson to win, then he wouldn't have had the extra money to buy his wife and two daughters new dresses from the most expensive dress shop in town. And the older of the two girls, called R. Elizabeth, wouldn't have let her hair down and donned that brand new yellow dress that made her look like an angel. So those white boys wouldn't have noticed her wouldn't have called out to her from across the road, wouldn't have followed her and jumped her just as she reached the bend and dragged her into the brush where they raped and beat her. If all of that hadn't happened, then Easter wouldn't have looked up to see her sister crawling home on all fours like a dog with a bloodstain shaped like the state of Texas on the backside of our Elizabeth's dress. Easter wouldn't have bore witness to the bite marks on our Elizabeth's breasts and wouldn't have heard the silence that streamed out of R. Elizabeth's mouth when she opened it to scream, no sound at all. Because after the first boy rammed himself inside of R. Elizabeth, her voice floated up into the sky never to be heard from again. And Easter wouldn't have had to accompany John Sr. down to the sheriff's office because her mother wouldn't let him go alone and wouldn't, couldn't send John Jr., because that boy hadn't unclenched his fists or his jaw since it happened. And besides, blood was swimming in his irises, and he claimed to hear it thumping in his ears. So Easter went and then watched her father change from a man to a boy right before her very eyes. And if Sheriff Wiley had not forced Easter and her father to stare at the filthy soles of his boots, because it had not suited him to remove his feet from atop the wooden desk, and if Wally had looked them straight in the eye like he would have his own kind, instead of watching them from beneath the shade of the wide-brim hat he wore, and maybe if he believed John Sr. when he said, I knows it was those white boys, because we found tufts of blonde and red hair clutched in our Elizabeth's hands, and Wally had just gone out and found those boys and arrested them instead of suggesting that our Elizabeth had torn her own dress and bit her own breasts, and broke her own hymen, all in order to cover up the somewhere or someone she had no place being or seeing, 
that maybe life for Easter would have been different. But Wally didn't do the right thing, and Easter looked up at her father who sat next to her with his head bowed, and she heard his timid voice say, Yes, sir, I suppose you could be right, but how do you explain the hair, the red and blonde hair? Wally said he couldn't explain it, and then dismissed them by tugging the brim of his hat down over his face and bid them a good day. If he hadn't done that, and Easter hadn't seen the tears welling up in her father's eyes, she wouldn't have turned into the snarling, howling thing, and her father wouldn't have caught her by the waist, just as she leapt across the desk, intent on tearing out Wiley's throat. If Jack Johnson hadn't been quite so dark, and hadn't pumped his fist in the air like the champion he was, well then, maybe. If our Elizabeth had just put on one of the old, worn dresses she owned and kept her hair pulled back in a tight bun, Easter probably never would have written the word hate on a piece of paper, crumpled it into a ball, dropped it in a hole in the ground, and covered it with dirt. And her mother wouldn't have tried to go back to living as if that awful day hadn't happened and those boys weren't walking around as free as birds. And she never would have had the strain of pretending that everything was normal, even though our Elizabeth had lost her voice, and John Jr. had taken to staring down every white man in town, and John Sr. was intent on trying to make himself grow big again, and thought that taking refuge in the arms of another woman would help him to do that. And if Zelda, Zelda hadn't found the love letters pressed in the pages, pressed into the pages of her husband's Bible, letters written on fine onion skin paper that smelled of rose water, then John Jr. wouldn't have caught her crying, wouldn't have seen the letters scattered on the floor, and wouldn't have hit his father so hard that it knocked the wind out of both men. If all of that hadn't happened, then John Jr. wouldn't have had to leave the house, the town, and the state, and Easter might have gone on loving and respecting her father, but it did and Zelda's heart snapped under the strain, pain, and betrayal, and she died. If there had not been a funeral, there would not have been a repass, so there would have been no need for Easter's father to wait patiently for the last mourner to leave the house before he changed his clothes, mounted his horse, and galloped off into the night, leaving the scent of his pipe tobacco hanging in the air. And if he hadn't left then he couldn't have returned with the wide-eyed, milky-brown woman who smelled of rose water and wasn't much older than our Elizabeth. He couldn't have brought her into their home, told Easter and our Elizabeth her name, which was Truda, and then informed them that she was his new wife and their new mother. If Jack Johnson had just thrown the fight and our Elizabeth had maybe walked down a different road and not have been so pretty, everything would have remained the same in their small home, and Easter would not, would not have known the aching sadness of a dead mother, gone brother, and mute and ruined sister. And if, there, and if there was no ache and no sadness, then Easter would not have taken the, the gown that her mother died in, laid it across the dining room table, arranged the china, crystal, and silverware with the scrolled handles on top of it as if it was a special holiday and the family were expecting dinner guests and she would not have placed bunches of flowers at the neckline, hemline, and sleeves, but she did. And when Truda walked into the dining room the next morning, she forgot to breathe. And if Truda hadn't forgot, forgotten to breathe, then maybe she wouldn't have screamed, 
which of course brought John Sr. into the room to see what the matter was. After that, he kicked in the door to Easter's bedroom and found her sitting on the edge of the bed staring at her palms. He charged in and loomed over her like a great black hawk and hollered that he should have drowned her at birth. And if he hadn't said those hurtful words, Easter would have stayed in Waycross, Georgia, married, had children, grown old, and died. But on that summer day in 1910, Jack Johnson did beat James Jeffries, and our Elizabeth did put on that yellow dress that made her look like an angel, and nothing and nobody was ever the same again. Thank you. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, about Glorious or any of my other books? Essence? Uh, yeah. Essence hasn't featured Glorious. Yeah, for their book club list. Really? It was like two months ago, something like that. Essence? Yes. It's like a whole page spread. I don't know anything about that. Oh, okay. I thought you knew Really? That. Yes. Well, That's how I heard about the book as I was reading Essence magazine. Surprise, surprise. Oh. Well, thank you. Oh, what okay. month was that? <laughs> it was about that means my publisher is not doing his job. About three months ago. Wow. Oh, well, I feel great. Thank oh, you. Okay. <laughs> Hello. Hi. How did you feel about having Alfred Woodard read the audio version of the book? Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. I was just, I was overwhelmed when I got that news. Like, really? Great. Yes. I have I've read Sugar about five or six times. <laughs> I love that book and I love this bit of earth. Thank you. Sugar, did you I mean how did you come up with that that a character? And then her mother. Her mother was Um You know, I don't even know. <laughs> Just you know, Sugar actually started out as a poem. And then I expanded it into a short story and uh then a novel and she just I think that she's a composite of a lot of different aunties. And, and if not the aunties, at least the stories that they told around the Thanksgiving table. Um, she's just, she's, she's unique. Yes, she, is. she is unique. She's unique and familiar at the same time. It's just God. <laughs> I'm sorry. Will we hear? Oh, a sequel. Um, I don't think so, but you know, I've learned to never say never. So not right now. Besides Sugar, uh, Loving Donovan is one of my favorite books by you. Do you ever hear a voice continuing anything from Loving Donovan? No, that was you know, fictional account of my own personal experience. And a no, Donovan. Donovan has moved on. He's married and happy, and okay. I'm single and happy. Well, everybody's fine. <laughs> Bernice, could you talk more about the writing process? When we were at McDowell, I can remember that um, there were not that many writers there, and very few of us were nonfiction. I was a nonfiction writer, mm -hmm. and we all talked about you know how much writing we'd gotten done that day, and there was a lot of angst and pulling out our hair and two great paragraphs, and I remember you very casually and flippantly said, oh, I did 15 <laughs> pages or 10 pages or something, and um, you don't have a problem kind of getting it out. And the, the reason I have the question is, and I understand the talent part of it, but because you settle these books in a particular like time period, like mm -hmm. the Harlem Renaissance or even Sugar, and you're, it, you're such a detailed writer, 
how do you put the research, when do you have the time to do the research and the writing, and how do the two come together? For me, it's almost like going into a trance. It's an out-of-body experience. And so I basically put down exactly what it is I am seeing in my mind. It's, it's like watching a movie. So it's, that's why it's easy for me. And I know it's, um, writing is um, a very difficult thing. But there are difficult times with my writing. And that only comes into play because I have to, at that point, step outside of my fantasy life to deal with real life. And so that's when it becomes a challenge for me. Um, now that I'm sort of free <laughs> of my obligations, I can be almost 100, well, almost 90% committed to my writing. Um, that's, so that's, that's why it just flows for me. And especially if I'm in a place where there are no outside distractions like McDowell, no telephone ringing. Um, if I walked over to the window, I'm just going to see trees and birds, not a car, not who's fighting on the corner, none of that. And so that, um, that space worked very well for me. But it's also kind of dangerous because writing is such a solitary act. And I find myself, the older I get, pulling further and further away from friends and family simply because I, I have this relationship with whatever story I'm working on. And I don't want anything to come between me and that story. So it's almost like a very dysfunctional love affair. <laughs> I enjoy um, Toni Morrison immensely. Um, Mercy came out two years ago, so I'm just, you know, you have to be in a certain frame of mind for Toni, and I have not been in that frame of mind. But now I'm there because um, I'm hearing some of my fellow writers saying that Mercy, they believe Mercy is the best book that she's written. And I'm like, really? Because she's written some out-of-sight books, so... Now I'm, I'm starting to read her. I read all across the board. I just read um, um, The Road, Cormac McCarthy. I, didn't, I purposely did not watch the movie. And I thought that book was phenomenal. And I'm also reading Edwidge Danticat's um, Brother, I'm Dying. So I'm inspired by a number of different writers from different ethnic backgrounds. I noticed that you said a lot of the books in the South. Do you ever, like, visit, like, have you visited Waycross, Georgia? I mean, because when you write, you really, you know, create the environment, and it's almost like you're there in that environment. I have not. I hope to, <laughs> but I haven't. And I haven't even spent a lot of time in the South. No, I spent all of my childhood really was um, my summers, my summers when I was growing up, I spent those in Barbados. So, but I was with my mother's family the other nine, ten months out of the year, and my mother's family, they're all from the South. And so I think that's where the influence comes from. But, um, no, I hope to, I've never even been to 
Bigelow where I wrote, you know, where Sugar is um, set. And for a long time, I thought that was a fictional town. I thought that was a town I had made up. And then I received a letter from a white lady who said she was from Bigelow, and it was a white town, but it was a small town. It, she said I had gotten everything basically correct except the color of the folk. So, <laughs> yeah. And, and that, that was because that was, I started writing that story before the advent of the Internet. So I didn't really have a way of checking it. So it, it had, I had started writing it so long before it was published that by the time it was published, I didn't even go back and check. It's not that, it's not that, um, it's really not that simple. But I do have people who have um, expressed some interest. Essie Paytha was interested. Essie Paytha, Merkinson was interested. Debbie Allen was interested years ago. Um, and then that fell off. But right now, um, Kimberly Elise, she, she loves sugar. So I think she's talking to people. Last night I went to dinner with um, Anika Noni Rose and Amy Moore, the producer of Number One Ladies Detective Agency. So, you know, people, it, it, takes, it takes a while, and I want it to end up in the right hands. And I think it will happen. Everything happens in its own time. So, and I'm, I'm cool with that. <laughs> you had a question? I've really enjoyed your presentation. I understand there's such a thing as writer's block. Is that is that true? Where you get to a point where you just can't get that information to come out like you want to. It doesn't appear that you have that, but is it true that some writers do experience writer's block? S some writers do. I don't believe in writer's block. Oh, you don't? No. Okay. What I believe in is this. And um, this was confirmed for me. Year before I was published, I went to see Jay California Cooper speak. She was probably one of the first um, authors I went to see. I had never been to a book signing. And um, in Kuru, it's a small independent, well, was well, a small independent, independently owned bookstore in Brooklyn. And we were all piled in there. And, you know, she was old then. <laughs> and, uh, but she's just, she's got this fire even now. And she said, I was at the back of the store, and she said um, she believes that her stories are brought to her by guides, guides and spirits or angels or fairies, whatever you want to call them. And she said when they have other jobs to do, they have other people to service, and they'll come and spend some time with you, and then they have to go service those other people. And that's, for her, that was when the story would stop. And she didn't lament on, on that. She just went about her life. And when the fairy or the guide came back, the story continued. And I was standing in the back of the bookstore going, oh, I'm not crazy. Because that's how I felt. That's, I always felt that way. It's like there's a, there's a presence when I'm writing. And some days I wake up and that presence is not there. And I don't worry about it. I can go weeks and months without typing a word. The manuscript that I'm working on now, I haven't looked at since the end of June. And I was very surprised when I opened it up the other day to find that I have 280 pages. Uh, the last 40 or 50 pages, I don't really remember writing. That's how long it's been. But it's, it's good to take that break because it's all fresh now.
and I know what works and what doesn't work. And so now I'm eager to get back to the story. But some writers do, like they do have writer's block. It just won't come for them. The other part of that is um, I'm attempting, and I have been attempting to write some poetry for about eight years. My grandson is 14, and I believe that I started. I, I can't even remember now. And I use a little black and white composition. I haven't really put it into any form. But I noticed um, basically what I was trying to do it was based on warriors, that I'm grandma warrior and he is grandson warrior, mm-hmm. and t- attempting to link the two generations together. And it seems like I've reached a point where I'm waiting for some action to come on on his part, because that's what my poetry is written on. Mm-hmm. What I've experienced, I come out of the civil rights area, and what he experiences, and it's like I'm waiting for something to happen mm-hmm. with regards to, you know, his piece right. as far as writing some more poetry with regards to that. Mm-hmm. And I, basically, I was just wondering why has it taken me, I mean, it's been kind of like several years, and why has it taken me that long? I think sometimes you, you have to ask. There's nothing wrong with asking for it. Stand up in the middle of the room and, and just ask for it. Say, I, need, I don't feel like it's finished. I don't feel like it's done. Or maybe you have to have a conversation with your grandson. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe let him read some of it and then hear what he has to say, and maybe that will inspire you to go further. Okay, thank you very much. Welcome. No, Geneva Holiday is... Um, although there's one, I, there's one last book I'd like to, to write, as Geneva Holiday, because I, it kind of um, caught me off guard at the end of that contract. So the story, I wasn't able to wrap up the story the way I would have liked. So right now, no, but maybe, maybe. Bernice, I was hoping you could talk uh, about your views that you've been writing about and have been getting some attention about the placement of books by black authors in bookstores. Um, it's an issue that I've been very familiar with as well <laughs> and that I think the audience would be interested in um, and, and what your views are about how this affects the sales yeah. of books by black authors and also the readership. Um, for the past two years, I've been yelling and screaming about what we call, what we authors have really labeled segregation. <laughs> it's segregation of um, books written by people of color. If this was happening to any other ethnic group, there would be a riot in the street. And um, I think uh, they've been able to get away with it for so long because you're not, for African Americans, for a long time we weren't represented. Um, Our literature wasn't represented. So we were so excited when we got a shelf in the bookstore and then another shelf and then this whole section. But the, the problem with that is that the audience is limited. So we have some young Caucasian people here. Do you go into the black section of the bookstore? No. Right, because what that says is, it's not for you. That's basically what it says. And so what happens is, my audience is limited, which means I can't bring in my numbers. So I'm being punished for something that publishing endorses. The other problem 
is that um, I use I use Catherine Stockett as the example, and I'm sure she's aware of this. I'm sure. Whatever I've written about her, they send to her. But I always say it's not about Catherine because we should be able to write whatever it is we want to write. And she wrote a book she wanted to write, The Help. Now, Catherine and I are at the same house. Well, Sugar and This Bitter Earth are still with them under Penguin Putnam. And what they did for Catherine was they gave her a beautiful cover, as they did with Sue Monk Kid, um, Secret Life of Bees. And that those two books were marketed to everybody. But if I had written that book, it would have been a black book. What really, I think, sent me overboard this year, earlier this year, I was on Black Expressions, which is not a black company. A lot of people don't know that. So I was on Black Expressions, and I saw that the help was listed on Black Expressions. But Bernice McFadden can't get into, what are the other book clubs? Reader's Digest. Once, once they created black expressions, they put all the people of color in black expressions. So my question was, why is Catherine Stockett there in black expressions? But nobody could, nobody could explain that to me. So this is a problem. What, what it seems that publishing is doing is they're acquiring books that really denigrate the African-American people and books that are written by other that are written by people of color that tell a different story those books are being ignored so there are a lot of aspiring authors who aren't getting book deals. There are a lot of authors who are being published, African-American authors who, who are being published that you don't hear about, that the, they'll acquire the book, they'll publish the book, and they'll do nothing for it. So now, in 2010, if you want a book deal, you have to have a marketing plan. And that was, so now I have to write the book, and I also have to, you know how much energy that takes? Especially if that's not your thing. So for um, six to seven months straight, all I did from last October until um, I think April or May was just marketing. That's it. So I could have been finished with my book, but I had to put all that time in, into marketing. So it's just um, it's a, it's a very sad situation, but we have we have to change that. If you go into your local bookstore and you can't and my book is just only in the black section, you have to let the manager know that you don't appreciate it. And if you say, I'm not shopping here anymore, it's all about commerce. They want your money. And even with the libraries, you go into the libraries, if the books that you want to read by people of color, or whoever, it's not there, you go to the person and say, this book needs to be put on the shelves. Please order this book. Um, we also do not make money if you pass books around. And you don't, look, you don't think about it that way. You don't think about it that way. But if you take one book and you pass it around, I can't continue to publish. I'll always write because I write for me. But you won't be able to read my stuff because no one's going to publish it because I'm not bringing in the numbers. It's the same thing like LimeWire. Oh, that's why it's so expensive now to go to a concert because everybody's, you know, 
downloading the music for free. <laughs> yes. Does it matter how much of your book you have written before you start doing your marketing plan? Um, no. If you know what the story is about, I think you can start your marketing plan at any point. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you participate in the National Black Book Conference that they have in Atlanta? Yes, I was there. Um, I was there this year. Okay. Mm -hmm. Going next year? I don't think so. I haven't been invited back. <laughs> I was there because of the new book. I haven't been. Um, I haven't been down since 2006, I think, or 2007. We went to Ghana. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you have anything to do with the narrators that who who uh, do the books? I mean, who read your books for audio books? I do not. Well, Myra, Myra Lucretia Taylor did an excellent yes, job with Sugar. And she did a few of my books. Okay. I think she did Nowhere is a Place. Yeah, she's fabulous. She has a wonderful mm -hmm. voice. Yes. I want to thank you.